Do not confuse this with treatment or mental health advice or direction. Nothing on this podcast is made to supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your mental health caretakers. Although David Kozlowski is a licensed marriage and family therapist, he is not functioning as a certified mental health professional in this environment. But same applies to any professionals who may appear on the Light the Fight podcast. Everybody, welcome back to Light the Fight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for, for coming back and whatever you're doing, wherever you may be, folding clothes or exercising, you know, whatever you're doing, um, thank you for taking the time to listen and to, um, you know, being willing to open up your heart and your mind to changes that need to happen. Um, because you hear me, Heidi Swap, enter, entering into Light the Fight podcast, um, David Kozlowski, who is usually with me, my partner in crime, is not here with us this week. Um, David is sick, and he's not COVID sick. He's got some other things going on. Um, so if you're the praying kind, we we would love to pray for him. We got to get him back in here because you guys, I need this. I need this guy. We all need him, right? Um. But I am really excited uh, tonight. I have invited a special guest, and and it's good. It's like almost as good as having David here. Taryn is one of the first people I think that Dave introduced me to in um, the suicide prevention realm. I still remember vividly the day that I met you, Taryn. Um, and so so Taryn is she just told me her title is area director for AFSP, which is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Taryn, let's just start out by you kind of introducing yourself. Tell us about, um, yeah, just go ahead and introduce yourself. I love it. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, I, I too remember that day very well, and I'm so grateful. Um, David is, is one of the people that I, I just really respect and admire because, you know, when I was looking for resources for youth, um, I can't even remember how he and I got connected, but I got to come and attend his, his group, Quit Trippin', and just literally sat in utter amazement at, at what he as an adult was able to do with these young people. And I thought, oh, my yeah. God, we as adults have groups like this where we come <laughs> real. And I just, anyway, just an honor to, to get to be with you tonight. Um, so I just got chills all over my whole body because the same thing happens to me when you, when you experience that, that quit tripping group. Yeah. I mean, I literally just talk. Yeah. yeah, Authentic, 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 authentic. And so needed. And I got to just a a huge amount of healing take place. And I did, you know what, why I think it stood out to me so much is because so many of them were willing to share this, this thing right? This one thing that, that some of us are willing to take to the grave because we think, oh my gosh, if anybody knew, you know, if anybody knew. And, and I say this all the time, you know, we all find out that when we throw all of our dirty secrets into a pile, they all stink. <laughs> and a lot of them, <laughs> you know, if we would just be willing to do that. And so, um, you know, I, I'm somebody that, that held on to secrets. So I understood that and, and held on to them for a long time and just wished, yeah, I could have had found something like that as a teen because it would have done wonders for me, you know, in my own journey. But our journeys are what they are and, and we each get on and 
and mine has been a, a beautiful, um, a heartbreaking, uh, a strength building, um, twists and turns and ups and downs and, and just a, a really beautiful life. And, and I wouldn't have all those gifts, you know, had I died all the times I tried. And so I'm so grateful for that. Um, you know, to introduce, I, I, again, Taryn Hyatt, and I, I serve as the area director for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I did not come into that job as a, a job I intended for my life by any means, you know, suicide prevention was not on my radar of things to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was one of those causes that just chose me and, and um, I, I wouldn't trade it, you know, it, it has been um, so fulfilling. In fact, I'm laughing because earlier today I sent out an email and and in that email, I had typed the wrong email address for one of my board members. And so I got a reply back from this gentleman who kindly said, um, excuse me, ma'am, you have the wrong email. You just sent me all this suicide prevention stuff. <laughs> I, I kind of went, oh, crap, I'm so sorry. Well, I just got a reply before we jumped on. And, you know, he said, thank you. I'm somebody who lives with severe depression, and we need people out there like you fighting for us. You know, thank you. And I just thought, wow. You know, and yeah. I believe there's, there's no, you know, coincidence in my world is God's way of being anonymous. And so I, I'm yeah. grateful, you know, I'm grateful. Wow. You know, Taryn, maybe talk just for a second about what you do in your job, because as I kind of sit from my vantage point, you are traveling and I mean, COVID has kind of yeah, changed. Not this it. year, but usually, <laughs> you know, usually you are one minute you are in a state doing a walk, the next minute you are up on Capitol Hill talking, and the next minute you're at a march, the next minute, I mean, so just talk about what your job is at AFSP. Yeah, you know, um, AFSP, so the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is the, the leading nonprofit, you know, doing the work to really understand this leading cause of death. It was founded back in 1987 by researchers and loss survivors to answer that never-ending question that we grapple with of why, right? Why did my right. love die? What could I have done? What, what, you know, why? And so after we lost our dad, I, I sat at my computer one night and I came across, and remember this is in the days of AOL dial-up, none of this. <laughs> but as my computer dialed up and connected, you know, I, I found this organization and learned real quick, Utah didn't have a chapter and just said, okay, what do I got to do to bring a chapter here? We need this. And, and we started that process. And, and our organization really is, is fourfold. You know, we fundraise through events so that we can have money to be able to fund research. And that's where the, the bulk of our money that we raise goes. Uh, suicide prevention gets a drop in the bucket compared to other leading causes of death. Right. Uh, we get in the millions, but other leading causes are getting billions. And that's where we see progress happening. And so we, we, we advocate for that. You know, another part of my job is education. We do education in our communities. That was something that, that I was so determined after we lost our dad that had to happen because back then, you know, this is almost 18 years ago, um, just the way we looked at suicide was so different than we look at yeah. it. And so it's just helping people understand it's a health issue. So let's learn about it like a health issue, talk about right. it, warning signs, risk, all that stuff and what we can do. Um, and then we advocate, and we advocate for policy change, both at the state and, and national level. And then we do support for survivors. We do outreach visits and train people to run groups. And so you're right, on any given day, um, I could be in five places. I could be hosting an event to raise money. I could be up at the Capitol testifying for, for needed legislation or against legislation that won't be helpful. Right. 
yeah, teaching a class and, and I'm the person that anytime I get asked, I'm like, yep, I never say no. I've had to learn over the years to say, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I want people to, to have the tools and I want people to, to never have to feel what we felt. Um, you know, we were isolated and, and again, it wasn't because people didn't care. They didn't know what to do. You know, they didn't say. And so I want to be able to have something that, that helps the survivor go, okay, I'm not, I'm not alone and I don't have to go through this you know, by myself. Um, I don't know a lot about the story of your dad, except for the tidbits that you share via social media. And I have been um, particularly loved what you've shared lately um, because it looked to me like maybe you found some old photos. You ran across some old photos. And so you were just kind of sharing these photos. And of course, for me, photos are everything. And um, so why don't you kind of talk about, tell us about your dad. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I, went, I went out in my garage. And most of us, if you're like me, I haven't cleaned out my garage in a long time. You know, COVID <laughs> to doing things we wouldn't have normally done. I did not bake sourdough bread, though. That is something I did not. But I did clean my garage. <laughs> and I did. I came across a bin, and I just found so many treasures. So my dad, um, Terry Aiken, uh, was a very handsome. I, I think he is just such a handsome man. Uh, my dad grew up here in, in Utah. He was, you know, born and raised um, he grew up on a dairy farm. Um, in fact, he and Governor Herbert were friends and grew up together on that dairy farm. Oh, that's funny. So funny. Um, and have many a story to tell about that dairy farm. Um, you know, in high school, he was uh, a basketball player. Um, my dad, because he was a ball player, he had, you know, injuries like any sports person will. He blew out his knee. Um, and that started a, a journey into something that, that would be a lifelong journey for him of, of opioid addiction. Um, he was given narcotics for that and, and you know, used them then, but it was like a, a continuation. Um, he would come, come to find out he, he suffered some pretty severe depression, but never understood that that's what it was. Sure. He did, did all the right things. He went to church. He got married. He got married in the temple. He had five kids. He was a successful businessman. He was an insurance salesman. You know, as a kid, I, I didn't want for anything. I mean, we had a beautiful home. We had four-wheelers. We went on trips. I mean, we had a, a fabulous life. Um, but again, underneath the surface was this, this kind of underlying, you know, issue with my dad. Um, that made it hard on his marriage. And, and my mom is a beautiful woman who, who gave her all um, as long as she could till she said, I, I just can't do this anymore. Um, you know, he was, he was addicted to things that uh, medications and, and just couldn't seem to get off them. And she was at a loss and didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And so divorced. And, and that was a really difficult time for my dad. I, I remember that. That was, that was devastating to him because his kids were his everything. And so to have us no longer there, because, you know, most of us went with my mom. My one brother did stay with him. Um, he just really started to spiral. He, he did get remarried, but that marriage quickly fell apart. Um, he ended up having, gosh, one of, you know, 22 surgeries that he had throughout his life. Wow. Because he had such severe depression, he developed really severe anxiety. And that meant he had things like acid reflux, stomach issues. Um, and so he ended up having a surgery that, that went awry, for lack of a better term. Um, this doctor practiced some pretty gross negligence. And at any rate, my dad ended up on uh, feeding tubes. Um, for about two years and wasn't able to work. And so my little sister cared for him. 
and and took care of him and in this this time was when he went through yet another divorce that you know lost everything he lost his job he lost his home um, I remember us coming home from the hospital and and people coming into our home and literally taking stuff off the walls that they bought as a yard sale and he just sat there on the porch watching his whole life be taken mm-hmm. and and that was, you know, again, unbeknownst to us, not realizing how hard that was for him. And it was very shortly after that, you know, he had his first really serious suicide attempt. And even then, you know, this was in 97, we just didn't know what to do. You know, when he came home from the hospital and we didn't talk about it, nobody addressed what had just happened, even though it was glaring what had happened. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember cutting his hair one day and he just reached up and touched my hand and had me stop. And, and he said, tear I didn't want to die. I just didn't know what else to do. And I just hugged him and I said, I know, I know. And I wish I'd have said more. <laughs> and you know, by that point he had, yeah, five more, five more years of, of just ugly, lost everything, did some time in jail um, for some of the decisions he had made, trying to keep his agency afloat was, you know, did some crooked things and had to pay the price for those and ended up working at our local 7-Eleven graveyard shift because that was the only job he could get. And I was just so proud of him because I thought, you know, I don't know many men at his stature who had been such a pillar in our community who could have faced his friends and the people that he loved um, that would see him at the 7-Eleven. I used to show up there at the middle of the night (laughs) because I'd been out doing what I did. And I'd hang out with him and he'd feed me coffee and we'd we'd chit-chat. And those are some of my most treasured memories. Um, because he fought. He fought a really valiant battle a really long time. Um, but on October 5th of 2002 uh, is when he, 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 he died um, from suicide. It was a conference weekend. Um, I grew up LDS, my, and, and there's no irony there. This is not about blaming. This is 100% about what my dad saw in himself as a member of the church and as somebody who was a priesthood holder. He felt he was very weak. He didn't understand that he had an addiction. He didn't understand that he had this mental health condition because we didn't talk about him like we do today. And I, uh, I found this, this, these writings that we came across after he died, and it was time when he was in jail. It was a period where he was sober because he was off all medications. He had to be. Right. And you know, on one paper he had written, if I go home and continue to abuse tranquilizers, my life will end in suicide. And then on the other paper he wrote, you know, Terry was a man of great principle. He lived to the age of 72. I love that that's as far as he gave himself. <laughs> in fact, it probably in seems super old. Though. He wrote that his death date was 128-2020. I thought was really interesting. I, I found that the other day and went, wow, he picked 2020 of all years. <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was kind of an insight into his mind. And, and at any rate, when he died, it, it just, it, it broke our family. It broke my heart. It broke. Our, our, my siblings, our relationships have never been the same, and, and it devastated us. And so it was, it was an opportunity, though, to do something different. And, 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 you know, I remember our family, his siblings, you know, us kids, sitting down and, and having that conversation of what are we going to tell people? Because, you know, back then it was still that shh. And I just remember saying, and, and trust me, we weren't the only family having that conversation. I hold no ill will that anybody said that. That's, that was what the norm was. Then. Oh, I had that conversation too. Yeah. And I just remember <laughs> saying like, we're going to tell the truth. We're going to honor him by being honest about everything. 
about all the things he went through, about all the crap that happened. I mean, I don't know any other human who could have endured the things my dad endured in this life and, and yeah. made as long as he did. You know, he was addicted to opioids. He was taking 30 Ambien a day in the three weeks leading up to his death. I mean, the amount of medication he was on was, was mind-boggling. I don't know how he even functioned. Right. Oh, you know, it's just important to me. It was important to me to tell his story so that we could help somebody else. That was a lot. And, <laughs> well, I... Obviously, it's super just t tender. Um, <laughs> you know, I know that there's a lot of individuals out there in our families that are going through really similar stuff from the standpoint of dealing with a dealing with a an addiction that is linked to their health and not being able to sleep or not being able to work or having anxiety like this is a this is hard it's a hard thing and um so so talk about um where you were at in your life when that happened um and how that affected you and your choices and how your journey kind of changed or. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I definitely was in a, a really interesting place. I'll start, I'll say it like that. <laughs> I was 26 years old. I was a single mom. I had two beautiful kids. Um, Colin was, was barely five or not five, seven at the time. Caitlin had just turned two. In fact, her birthday happened just four days after he passed. Um, I had struggled a lot of my, my life. Um, as a teenager, I, I went through a really ugly period. You know, I, I used a lot of drugs and alcohol to cope with stuff that had happened to me as a kid. I mentioned, you know, in the beginning, I had this, this secret. I had been sexually abused by our neighbor and not just any neighbor. It was a really close family friend. It was a female. So there was all sorts of stigma around me being able to talk about what had happened and who do I tell. So I told no one. Yeah. Well, if you know, I was suicidal. I'd attempted. I spent time in a psych ward myself, yet we just didn't ever talk about it. I developed severe scoliosis. So I had a back surgery when I was 12 years old, which meant I was introduced to opioid medication. Mm -hmm. However, I saw what it did to my father. So I always made a very clear distinction that I wasn't going to end up like that. So instead, I would smoke marijuana or I would drink alcohol or I would do, you know, at least I'm not doing pills. That was always my justification. At least right. doing pills. Yet, you know, I found myself in some pretty ugly situations because of that. Um, I am a, a three-time rape survivor. I was raped when I was 15. I was raped when I was 23. And I was raped when I was 31. Um, and those experiences, again, just fed this this lack of love. I had no love for myself. I had no care for myself. You know, thank God I had those two kids because those two kids kept me going and keep me going today. But you know, when, when dad died, I was in a, a relationship um, with somebody who was very abusive. Um, of course, I didn't see it. I'm a fixer. I can fix anybody. Right. And I, I am Owen and thought I could change him. Um, and, you know, when, when my dad died, I, I wish I could say that was that moment that I turned it all around, that I quit drinking, that I quit, you know, all the things I did. And, and it wasn't the case. 
Um, for a few years, those things really escalated. Um, however, it was the time when I did, like I said, found AFSP and I started this project, right? I started planning these walks. I started all the things to bring a chapter. We held our first survivor day. You know, I, I did a few TV interviews where I probably shouldn't have because I drank too much the night before. In fact, it's so funny. Facebook memories, don't we love those? <laughs> I love hate relationship because some I go, oh, and then others I go, oh, that's right. But you know, um, I, I don't regret that journey because every step I took has led me to here and I'm so grateful for here. Um, I had one of those moments, um, you know, some people will, you'll hear it referred to an addiction as a bottom. And yes, it was a bottom. I, I don't ever want to go back to who I was, you know, seven years ago when I finally hit that place. But that's also something we need to change. Why do we wait and say people have to hit this ugly bottom, you know, before we get them help? Um, but I, I had one of those moments on June 23rd in 2013 where I just had done damage for the last time. I'd, I'd broken my son's heart for the last time. I, I remember I, I disappeared like I do sometimes when I would go out for weekends. They would go to their dad's so I could do what I wanted. And I'd been out drinking and, and I didn't show up. Um, I'm an alcoholic. When I drink, I drink. <laughs> I don't stop. And so, of course, I had a Facebook APB put out. I love when that one comes around. Each <laughs> I've seen my sister and people are commenting, oh, she was here. Oh, she was here. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I don't even know where I was. But okay. <laughs> And, um, you know, I, I got home that night and I, I sat on my couch and I was. I was in that place of I can't do this anymore. What are my options? Do I quit and just give up? Do I kill myself? Do I, do I, do I go that route? And, I, and that was not an option for me. Because my kids, I know what it did to me to lose my dad. And I love these two little kids. There was no way I was going to inflict any more pain on them than I already had. So the other option was, no, you, you do whatever it takes and you put this life behind you. And so I, I walked over to an AA meeting that happened to be by my house, and, and I sat there, and for the first time, I heard what I needed to hear. Um, I heard about this, this higher power, this God, you know, that could help me and could save me, and I jumped in at first and said, I will do whatever. Um, I think it's an interesting concept, you know, for people who struggle with addiction. It has nothing to do with willpower. If willpower, if we could do it on our own, oh my gosh, we would do it. But when I was willing, when I was willing to do something different, that's where the magic happened. And, you know, I can look back now and say it's been, you know, seven and almost a half years since any kind of mind-altering substance has entered my body. I've had surgery since, and I haven't taken a single thing, <laughs> you know, because it was important to me to, to, to let that past go. Um, and so there's a lot of good, you know, and I celebrate each day sober for me, for my dad, and for my kids, um, because those are the people that, that I, I wanted to prove it to the most, that I could do it. That's something that I admire so much about as I follow you, because you do post regularly that, those sober <laughs> milestones. And, and for me to look at you now I, you know, I don't, don't know that Taryn. 
I just know this extremely um, articulate, confident, passionate person that stands up there in front of everybody and talks about the hardest things with the most amount of empathy, compassion, belief in change. And, and um, I love that you're willing to say that you're going to, you're going to honor the good and the bad um, because we can't turn our backs on the stuff that made us who we are Mm -hmm. ever. Um, And so I really appreciate that about you. Um, The first time, uh, you know, Corey passed away in July. And so the first suicide walk was in September. It was only a couple of months. And um, I just couldn't even believe that there were people upright you know there and you were one that um i can i can always tell when um somebody gives you a hug that has had somebody close to them pass away from suicide it feels different than regular people hugs (laughs) and when you hug me that day um i could feel a strength of you know, we can make good things come from really hard things. And, um, and I knew that I could believe that because I knew that you weren't a regular person, you were somebody who knew. And, um, and I think that that's why it's so helpful to have somebody like you that's willing to bring your stinky sock story um, and teach from it teach from that place and so i i thank you for that thank you you know and and i it's funny to me because again there's so much irony here right i didn't have a voice for the longest time and now i don't shut up (laughs) (laughs) like gosh could she be quiet turn her down but but i think that's part of it is is for so long i did keep things so quiet and silent and and i didn't speak up and i didn't you know tell i didn't do some of those things and so it's been important to me and and again one thing i i learned especially in my recovery from from substance use was you know we're only as sick as our secrets and as soon as i got myself right with god and myself and who i had you know people i had wronged and i, I mean i had to make these amends that i thought oh my gosh am i really going to do oh i'm going to do this <laughs> you know <laughs> I mean, there is just something to be said about those, those lessons. And, you know, one of my favorite things to do in our community, and I miss this, I'll look forward to when we can be in, in groups again, but I loved schools were kind enough to invite me in. Um, and I would share, and I would always share parts of my story, and I would always make it a point to stay after. And without fail, there would be this line of kids, you know, just waiting to talk. And, and you know, because of what the work you guys do, they just want to come tell you because they know you're safe. They're like, wow, yeah. just did this uh, I'm going to tell you mine and it's so amazing to watch in that moment as they just utter this thing right that held on to that's what I saw in David's group that's why it was so powerful to me because I thought oh my gosh we need one of these groups in every single school so all these kids don't have to hold on to all this secret stuff but instead they could be free from it you know and, and learn ways to move through it instead of be paralyzed by it so it is powerful, you know, and I heard it said too, when we, when we share our story, we give permission for others to share theirs, and then we free ourselves from it. And, and so I was selfish in doing it, you know, I wanted some freedom. Yeah. 
found that. You know, I found that my story is, is just that. It's a story. It's a place I revisit when I need to, but I don't live there anymore. You know, that isn't who I am anymore. I was a pretty dang good functioning alcoholic. I had a lot of people snowed. <laughs> so. Well, and a, and a lot of alcoholics are. A lot mm-hmm. of um, users that, you know, and, and, and that sometimes those, I, I don't know. There's, there's a situation in my life that's real near and dear to that right now. And, um, and it's hard to watch and um, help and you do everything you do. You know, one thing that I, um, that I say about the Corey, my Corey situation is that I, there's so much I didn't know. And that's kind of what I want to go into next is, um, you know, kind of, the some beginning steps of what parents can know when, but I, I just didn't know. Maybe I thought that I knew, but I just didn't know how to help Corey. And so I did everything that I could do, but I didn't know. Um, I didn't know. And, and there's this, there's part of me that thinks, okay, well, you can only learn this when you go through it, right? You can only, learn how to prevent this or what you would do different when you get in the situation and then you have to look back in your hindsight's 2020 but suicide i think has changed so much in the last few suicide hasn't changed but the way we talk about suicide and the way that we're approaching suicide has changed so dramatically even in the last five years Mm -hmm. so why don't you talk for a second just maybe about um I mean, I guess I didn't realize that you started the first chapter of AF, AFSP here in Utah. I, didn't, I guess I didn't realize that. That's really cool. Yeah. What have you seen, like, from 18 years ago mm-hmm. to now? Kind of give us some of those highlights of change and, and where we're at now. Yeah. Um, so definitely so much has changed, um, so much growth, and yet still so much more work to do, right? But, you know, if I look even 18 years ago, again, it was that that stigma, right? This negative association around suicide. It was still referred to um, as, again, a sinfulness act. You know, religion preached that. You know, I had a friend whose dad died by suicide right around the same time as ours. And the funeral for her dad versus the funeral for our dad were dramatically different. I mean, I, I remember going, oh, my gosh, I would not have survived had I had to hear what they had to hear. And that that hell and he's done, you know, we'll hope God forgives him and all this kind of stuff. We didn't have to hear that, thankfully, at our service. We heard it from other people. Right. We didn't have to hear that at our service. Um, it was very much viewed as, a, again, a weakness, right? Oh, he was selfish. He was a coward. Yeah, yeah. The way out, we hear all those things. And I knew it was none of those things because of my experience. But even my siblings, they had those feelings and emotions because they didn't understand. And so I just knew, like, we got we to gotta get educated. And when I found AFSP, I mean, I just started having the language to be able to combat those statements, right? I learned it's a health issue, and here's how we approach it. And this is why we use the words that we do. Here's why we don't say committed, you know, because it perpetuates that stigma. And, and I think the thing that I have seen most profound is that that shift in, in thinking. Um, suicide, now, if you were to ask people, do you believe suicide is a health issue? Most would raise their hands and say yes. Yeah. But 20 years ago, 15 years ago, there was still some that went, well, I don't know. I think it's a choice. And if you've been there, 
Well, yes, it's something that the brain acts upon. So we could say the brain chose. I just don't believe that word is appropriate because again, choice implies we have options. And nobody in that moment of intense pain and crisis sees another way. That's why they're in that moment of utter desperation. Um, I think my friend Craig, um, who, who has said it best, you know, said as an attempt survivor, what it was for me is there was this thing that I wanted desperately to change. You know, the pain, whatever it was, I wanted to change the situation. I didn't know how. I, I felt trapped. I felt stuck. And I just wanted to escape it. And I felt that way. It wasn't that I wanted to be dead. It was that I didn't know how to stop what was happening to me and around me. And, and I just wanted to get away from it. You know, your brain almost goes into fight or flight mode and it says, get out, escape. And I always tell that 9-11 story because for me that clicked and made so much sense when we think of the people on 9-11 in those burning buildings. You know, when we started to see them jump, by definition, they died by suicide. They took their own lives, yet none of us sat in judgment. And the reason why is because we knew they didn't in that moment jump because they wanted to die. They, they didn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just back to 9-11, you know, it, it helped me understand why people and, and a way to explain what it means to be in a suicidal crisis. You know, our thinking is irrational. We're just desperate to escape something we can't change and, and we're feeling intense pain. And that's different for all of us. And so I think that that mind shift is what's helped people to maybe look at suicide differently, to look at it with more compassion, with more understanding, without the, you know, oh, they did it to me. Like I even had a gal the other day comment on one of my memories of dad and said something like, you know, I, I hope you've been able to find forgiveness for the pain. And, and for me, and again, just me, there's no need for forgiveness because I wouldn't forgive him if he had cancer. I wouldn't have to forgive right. him you know, another illness. So for me, I, I'm not angry. I, I understand, you know, what happened. And I know that's not everybody's journey, but, you know, I think those are the shifts that we're starting to see happen. And then the other thing I think that, that people are recognizing is because we're saying, hey, tell, talk about it. We're also educating, right? We're also teaching people, hey, this is what to look for. Because in our case, did our dad give warning signs? 100%. We just didn't know what to do with them. We didn't know right. how to do them. We didn't know what to say to him. You know, we didn't, I didn't know what to do. And, and so that, that, that conversation has changed. And then I think the other part that, that is really special is we have we're starting to move away from how we used to treat people who are suicidal. You know, I got put on many a 72-hour hold in a hospital in a psych ward with people who I was like, okay, wait a sec. <laughs> um, you know, definitely needed to be in that safe space. <laughs> But I just needed somebody to help me talk about what was going on in my experience and help me problem solve something that I couldn't. And so I think we're, we're seeing now that that conversation, right, that, that real combo is, is so vital because for a lot of us, we just need to be able to say out loud, oh my gosh, you know what, right now, because of whatever's happened, I'm thinking about killing myself. Like I'm thinking about suicide. Help me not to do that by just hearing me out because for me, if I can just put a voice to it, then all of a sudden I can go, okay, breathe. <laughs> that, that energy is kind of released in that, that thought. Now let's, let's start looking at what I can do. You know, I've learned things today I didn't learn before. So I think we're, we're approaching it differently. Um, and one of the hardest things as a parent, and you know this, you know, I know this as a parent, we want to fix it. You know, when your kids are hurting, when they're struggling, when they're screwing up and making bad choices, when they're, you just want to rush in and go, yeah, <laughs> fix yeah. it from themselves 
but we can't any more than my mom could have done anything different for me. You know, that was my journey. Yeah, could we have had more dialogue? Sure. Would that have been helpful? Sure. But I had to also go through some of the stuff I had to go through. I'm that kid that has to touch the burner and go, oh, is it hot? Oh, yeah, it's hot. <laughs> Again, oh, is it still No, I'm on the <laughs> And so I think that's the hard part is we, we need to also learn that we have to abandon our need to fix. Because even when somebody is in a state of suicidal crisis, I can't fix it for them. But I can be there. I can listen. I can love them. I can support them. I can encourage them to get help, but eventually they do. They have to save their own life. And so we're, we're seeing those, those shifts start to take place, but that's been a lot of work and a lot of conversations. You know, I love seeing obituaries now that just outright say, my loved one died of depression or my loved one died of addiction or my loved one died by suicide. You know, we're not hiding it anymore um, the way we used to. I love, um, I love the billboards that are up on I-15 right now that say, it's like two people sitting there talking and it says, this is suicide prevention. Yeah. And it, that makes me, it makes me emotional when I see it because I, I believe it so, so much. Um, just the fact that people can say the words and ask the questions and, um, you know, the Safe UT app and, and, I think kids are getting to, to a place where if they're worried about a friend, they go and tell their parents they're, you know, they're not um, hiding, hiding it and willing to, as David would say, narc their friend out, you know, for being in a, um, in a scary situation. Yeah. I love those billboards, you know, they, it really is, it's connection, you know, that's what it means is, is connecting and being present and, you know, David, you guys preach that all the time, too. And I love that. You know, David was one of the first people that really said, you know, what we need to create. And I, he said a couple of things that I love. One, how do we make suicide prevention sexy? And I was like, ooh, touche. we got to do that because we need to make people <laughs> want to be a part of this because for the time, people didn't want to be a part of it. Yeah. Two, you know, we talked a lot about social health. And that was a lacking, you know, thing. And a contributor is, is people felt that that lack of connection. You know, when I don't feel connected to you, to my life, to a purpose greater than myself, to, to people, to, to what I'm doing, that, that gives any of us a void, you know, or we're like, yeah. oh, what am I even doing? You know, what, what's the point if, if I don't feel that? So I love those words too. I try to like, oh, and I want to get my phone out, but then I'm like, oh. <laughs> just drive. I'm just going to pull over later and take the picture. So what do you think is like the next frontier? What are you guys fighting for right now? Yeah, you know, a lot of things. And, and when we talk about those boards that say, you know, this is suicide prevention, I will even go a step further. Ending racism is suicide prevention. Promoting equality for all is suicide prevention. Eradicating homelessness is suicide prevention. People being able to make a living wage is suicide prevention. Like there are, there are so many basic things. Um, again, I know for a lot of us as survivors, when we hear, you know, oh, well, suicide can be prevented. And in fact, there are some people who will stand adamantly and tell you it's 100% preventable. Now, I don't buy that because, again, until we can cure all of those world problems, it's not. Right. But there are things we can do. And, and so we got to start looking at how do we help to meet those basic needs of individuals. Um, you know, in our state, thank goodness for Steve Ellison, that representative out of Sandy, who has just kind of led the way and 
you know, created some some monumental legislation, especially last year, that was was able to still be funded even with COVID. That will create two new big crisis centers. So again, instead of having to go to an emergency room, where you're often kind of pushed to the side because you know they got to deal with the person coming in from the car accident or the right. person from the heart attack, um, and plus. If I just need to talk, why do I have to get into a gown and my butt's flapping out, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, that's, a that's safe. And, and it's a chair that I sit in or in a, in a lounge, you know, that's, that's comfortable and lighting, um, you know, where I can just talk. That's what these crisis centers will help to do. These will be a place where instead of cops and officers having to take people to jail for drug addiction, they can take them to this receiving center and we can try and get them into a treatment you know, instead of them going to jail because they're having a mental health crisis or an episode of psychosis, we take them to a place that can assist them with that mental health crisis. And so those are huge. Um, you know, funding mobile crisis teams. You know, again, this is a perfect opportunity for us to see in real time why this matters. Yeah. Not be angry at law enforcement when we're asking them to do a job they're not trained to do. That's plain and simple. They are doing way more than what the scope of their you know, 600 hours train them to do. Yeah. So have a global crisis team that can respond to a suicide threat, that can respond to somebody in a mental health crisis is way more valuable. And we now have these, you know, branching out into rural parts of our communities. But, you know, think of places like Deshane, you know, in Price, um, Delta. You know, you're lucky if you've got a Walmart. You don't probably have access to mental health services and resources the way we need to. So we'd have to do a lot about creating a system. Um, whenever I hear people say, oh, the mental health care system's broken, I say, no, it's not. <laughs> we never had it fixed. We don't, we don't even have it. <laughs> we don't have one. So let's build one, but let's build it the way we want it. And let's look to others who are doing that. And that's what we did. Our state went and visited several crisis centers in our region. Um, Colorado has a great example of a crisis service center. There who started with the billboards on, this, on the interstate talking about suicide that prompted the opioid billboards that we see in our state today and prompted the campaign of Live On. And so all of those things are important. You know, when Live On was created, we got a lot of flack because people said, well, why are you investing money in, you know, billboards and, and media? And it's because we got to change the culture. We need everybody to believe that yeah. this thing we can do something about and what does it look like? Once we get that buy-in, then we can have more voices at the table, you know, showing up at, at state days and, and talking to their representatives and demanding um, that we pass legislation like we did to ban conversion therapy on minors. You know, we need right. to people in our community who are most vulnerable. And, and th those are all things that are suicide prevention. So, I mean, we have a lot to do for sure, and it's going to take money, <laughs> and that's always the issue. So... But, you know, it, it starts with those things. Let's start meeting the needs of people um, so that they're not having to go without putting them in that state of feeling like I have no other option. I don't know what else to do. It feels like a big overwhelming job, doesn't it? A lot. <laughs> so we take a <laughs> little bite at a time. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm sure that for you, as you even for me, and, and it's only been five years for me that I've kind of been in this space and really probably only two and a half coherent years because I think I, I had some incoherent years there, but um, it must be somewhat reassuring to you to see this change and to actually see growth. I think um, to even see 
some of the really powerful things that are going on in the LGBT community supporting LGBT youth here and, and some of these really cool, it, it's devastating what COVID has kind of done. <laughs> to, brought to light all of these disparities, you know, it really has shown the light into our community that says, hey, here's where we're lacking. Um, I had a beautiful conversation with Representative Sandra Hollins, you know, who she says is a woman of color, and she's also a therapist, and then sits in our state legislature. She's one of the, you know, three women of <laughs> state legislature. But, you know, she said, when I see patients, you know, what I often hear them say is, I need somebody who looks like me. I want to go to somebody who looks like me, you know, so that's an area that we can start growing is making and providing opportunities so that in our communities of color, they're able to get an education, they're able to go to school, to become therapists if that's what they want. But again, make a living wage, um, but be able to provide that resource so that they have cultural competency providing that, you know, in our, in our state. And, you know, one of the, the moments that I, I just will never forget, um, there's two. So I've always had this kind of like secret thing, you know, where you think to yourself, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. And for years I've said, <laughs> I'm going to sit down with the, member, the leaders of the church and I want to tell them about this, and da, 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 right? Like I've had these things. And I remember on my dad's anniversary in 2013, so I was four months sober, is when Elder Holland gave that talk like a broken vessel. And of course, people are blowing up my phone. Are you watching conference? And I'm like, no, actually I'm not. But, you know, and as I listened to his words, of course, I just sobbed. And I remember my youngest sister calling me and saying, wow, now I understand what dad was going through. And I went, oh. And then my second, because I also thought too, I was like, Elder Holland, you just did more for the mental health movement <laughs> than we've done in the last 20 years. You on a pulpit and you said it out loud that you struggle too. It was powerful. And then the second was when I got asked to be a part of the governor's task force on youth suicide. And I always joke, I said, oh, I hope Governor Herbert didn't Google me. He'll see that Terry's daughter was. <laughs> and, you know, he didn't. And, and we got to have that conversation where I said, hey, I'm, I'm Terry Aiken's daughter. And he went, oh, my gosh, you know, your dad and I on the dairy farm. I said, well, I know I've heard stories. But, you know, I, I remember that first meeting we had of that, that task force was really about orienting the members on that task force to the issue. And one of those members was Elder Rasband from the LDS Church. And of course they picked me, they go, Taryn, you're gonna do the whole, how we talk about suicide and why we don't say committed and why we don't do course, thanks you guys. But I did. And I remember Elder Rasband coming to me after and saying, thank you. Cause I had never thought of it that way before. You know, most people don't understand that the LDS Church is one of the first organized religions that came out in opposition and said, Elder Renland, we will no longer say suicide is a sin. That is totally false. Yeah. It's huge. I never in my lifetime did I think we would see that. And we did. And so then I go, huh, okay, maybe there is something <laughs> out there because look what happened. But be careful what you ask for, right? Well, I remember after Elder Razan came out of that suicide task force meeting and having, you know, his media moment, and he said, we have to be first responders. And I was like, somebody's telling him, somebody's in there telling him that we can't freak out, that, you know, like, I, 
I was very thankful too. And it, it wasn't going to happen without people telling their stories. Yeah. You know, it wasn't going to happen if we kept pretending like everything was okay and pretending like there wasn't serious, serious crisis happening in our beautiful state, you know, like we look around and we think, I mean, how could we have all of these kids so sad? How, how, how can we, when, when we have such, so, so much, they have so much. And that's something that I feel like we really have to get away from as parents is looking at our kids and saying, look, you have this and you have this and you have this. How can you possibly be suicidal, you know, not want to be here or, or whatever. Um, and I think that in our state, that religion piece, and I appreciate, I mean, we have to acknowledge the fact that it's a, it's a plus and a minus. It's a, it's something that we can't hold over everybody's head and, and slowly, I, I do feel like this, that shift is happening and space being given and mm-hmm. um, understanding that we have to all come to come to Jesus and come to God in our own way that that because God will get us there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I have one more question that I that I kind of wanted to ask. Oh, yes. Um, so if this is your chance to kind of talk to parents, I know that you're a lot of times you're talking to kids and you're talking to survivors and you're talking to lawmakers and you're talking to task force members. And what about just these parents who are listening here at Light the Fight, who, you know, they, they're worried about their kids. They're having a hard time connecting with their kids. They're real worried about their social media. They're not sure what to blame but they can tell that there's stuff going on you know what what do you have to say to to the parents from your perspective what would you like parents to know well first of all just that you know be gentle with yourself because nobody gave you a little rule book or a guidebook on what <laughs> you like to be a parent and at least i didn't get one you know i got the what to expect when you're expecting but nobody said what to expect <laughs> you know and, and it would have been nice. Um, you know, I think the first thing is, is, again, get educated about mental health. What we know is that most young people experience their first onset of symptoms of a mental health condition by age 11. Same time puberty is happening, same time hormone changes are happening. So if you notice something that's lasting for a period of two weeks or longer, get them in, get them seen, get an evaluation. Um, make it okay to help seek. Renee Brown said it best, if we don't model help-seeking behavior for our youth, they will never attach value. If they don't see you do it, if they don't see you screw up and and have you share, hey, this is what I do when I make a mistake. When you yell at them, recognize it and go, crap, you know, that's not who I want to be. I'm sorry. Can we start over? I mean, we can model that too. I screwed up a ton as a parent. By no way was I a perfect parent. But, you know, I'm also that parent that both of my kids could come home and they knew no matter what. I can come home to mom and I can be honest. I can say whatever it is I'm thinking because she will have space for me. And I always told them, I said, you lie to me, all bets are off, but you come home and be honest. I'm here. 
I, I will, any, any truth you have to share, I got your back. And, and that meant my kid coming home and saying, mom, I had sex and the condom came off. Well, of course you have that. Oh, and then you're like, all right, here we go. Right. Act like a duck. What are we going to do? I mean, I did. I had those moments. I drove into Planned Parenthood to get plan B. Don't tell that story in a Catholic church. I, I learned that lesson. <laughs> um, you know, I maybe didn't make the best choices, but I definitely made sure that they were safe to come. And even my little Caitlin, you know, who is my little church going girl, even though I don't, you know, I remember when she had her, her little heart broken after dating this cute boy who was getting ready to go on his mission. So he did what he needed to. He ended the relationship so he could prepare. And, and while she knew that, while she understood that, she was devastated. And I remember her coming home one night and something, and God, you know, said, don't go to sleep, Taryn, because she'd been working at Old Navy during Christmas and, you know, it's late. And I remember her walking up the stairs and I just took a little, one look at her and she'd been doing the ugly cry for a while. <laughs> so what's Tell me what your brain is thinking. And she said, you know, I kept thinking I should crash the car tonight. I said, tell me why. Because then maybe he'd be sorry. And then maybe I wouldn't feel so bad. I said, okay, glad you didn't listen to your brain. Now let's talk about what do you need? What do you need to have happen? I need to feel validated, mom. Okay, what does that mean? A conversation? Yeah. I mean, we have these real live nitty gritty help our kids. You know, they don't know how to navigate a relationship. They don't know how to navigate a breakup. This is where we get to come in and say, let's, let's talk about what you could do. What do you think? What would you like? And I remember her saying, I said to her, I go, do you want me to call Tim? She goes, would you? I said, of course I will. She was like, oh, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, I call him. Um, you know, I model the process. Hey, Tim, call Caitlin, just talk with her. It's all she needs. You know, I mean, I think we just as parents need to know that our experiences matter. And, and while they might not always be in a place where they want to hear, we have to look at, well, maybe why don't they want to hear from me? And then maybe I need to change something in my behavior so they do. Maybe if I get on their level, then they will let me in. And one of the strongest lessons I ever learned happened again with Caitlin. I sat down one night with both of my kids and we created safety plans. I'm a huge believer we do not wait until our kid is in a suicidal crisis before we create a plan of what to do when they're in a crisis. <laughs> do it now. There's apps you can download, do it now. And when my kids were writing down, who are the three people they would call? Caitlin looked at me and said, are you going to be mad if I put grandma and not you? And I said, <sighs> I'm just kidding, I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, well, Caitlin, I want you to put who you would call. And if it isn't me, that's okay. Like we have to take our ego out of it. And sometimes that's not easy. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I, my favorite quote is, be the kind of parent your kid needs not the kind of parent you needed. Because a lot of times we parent out of what we didn't have or what we wanted to do different without going, but wait, I need to take you into consideration. What do you need um, for me? And if you don't know, ask them. Sit down and ask them. What do you need in this moment? What can I do as your mom, as your dad? And then hear them and allow them to share whatever it is. And I love you. Don't freak out. But I'm your face. I'm just, just here it. Just a minute to collect our, you know what? <laughs> right, right, and and that's man, that's that's probably my biggest takeaway is just, you know, not attaching everything in that moment, you know, because there's always there's always a trap door, there's always a window to climb out of, there's always a way. Um, Taryn, thank you for coming. Thank you for your work. 
Um, I, I just really admire it. And I think that, you know, many of us, when we lose somebody, we wonder what can we do? And I'm glad that you found a way to take action. Um, thanks for being brave and sharing your story that is hard. But thank you for sitting there with a, you know, we're on Zoom right now. Um, <laughs> and Taryn just has a, she's in this beautiful yellow dress and a bright smile on her face. I had to and, have something to brighten my day and it was my wardrobe. <laughs> yes, yes. I actually got and, dressed today. That's been a rarity for me. My husband comes home, he's like, oh, you're still in your jammies? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I put on jeans today and my kids are like, well, so where are you going? Yeah. Who's upstairs? <laughs> well, I want to just echo those sentiments right back to you. You know, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. You know, just thank you guys for also taking your story and, and sharing it with the masses because I watch you too and I see the amount of people you help and the amount of people you inspire. And that's the that's the way that we honor them most, right? And yes. I believe strongly um their lives, even though they were short here on this earth, they are saving and building more than we ever knew they could. And, and I'm grateful for that. So thank you for your voice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you all of you who are listening for being here and for, um, for listening. Um, I wanna echo one of the things that Taryn just said, which is get educated about mental health. Um, don't just go off of what, how you were treated by your parents um, because it's not good enough for right now. Um, it was good. Maybe it was good enough for us then. It's <laughs> it's it's changed, and um, and I think that that's so important. And opening the dialogue before there's a crisis so important. Um, really quickly, I want to thank One Eight Hundred Contacts, who is our community sponsor, who kind of um, have believed in us from the beginning who believe in the importance of supporting mental health in the community and in their own corporate culture. And I'm really thankful for that. Um, and thank you, everybody who's listening for helping us to light the fight. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.